Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. So, now your Bible. The scripture today comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, to testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. This is a word of God. Well, good morning, Avenue Community Church. How are you this morning? Good. Oh, that was really unenthusiastic. We're about to go, we're about to celebrate a holiday, get a break off from school and work. How are you this morning? Good. Well, it's my true honor to be here with you this morning as it has been all of the times before. A big thank you to Tim and to our elders for the privilege of standing before you this morning and opening the Lord's word. A huge apology to Kendall for having to pivot at the last moment and read from 1 John. Once again, <laughs> I communicated late, and so the, the passage was wrong. But this morning, as, we've, as Kendall read for us, we are going to open up the first letter of John, the first epistle of John, and read from 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And I started us this morning with this video clip from the movie Coco. Some of you have probably seen it. Uh, it's been out for a little while. And in the movie, our young hero, Miguel, who's playing the song in our clip, returns from his adventure in the land of the dead with a song that awakens the memory of his aging great-grandmother. The reason I showed you that clip this morning is that as we launch into our time together, I want you to have this idea in your mind. The gospel is like a song that having once heard it begins to awaken a fundamental part of who we are made to be. Let me say that one more time. The gospel is like a song that having once heard it begins to awaken a fundamental part of who we were made to be. In the movie, Miguel loves music, but it's the one thing in his family that is strictly forbidden because it is believed that his great-great-grandfather abandoned his his family for a life of musical fame. But what Miguel discovers in the land of the dead is quite the opposite. Upon meeting his grandfather, he learns to play this song, the one that we heard in this clip. It's the one that his grandfather played for his young daughter right before his disappearance. And it's this song that unlocks the memory of what has truly happened, that the grandfather did not in fact abandon his family but was murdered. And so he's, he's come, come and talked to Miguel and he's passed this song and Miguel brings it back to his great-grandmother. And in that moment, what I love so beautifully, you see as the family is, is struggling with their anger and their hurt and their frustration And that song begins to play, and the great-grandmother comes alive. One quiet, beautiful melody in an instant frees her mind and restores her joy. This morning, we too are going to hear a song of sorts, and it is a song of the gospel, which the Apostle John boldly proclaims at the beginning of his first epistle. This song has the power to unlock our bodies and our souls from bondage to sin and death. This song is life. It is the song that Christ proclaimed through his incarnation and made alive as he walked out from the grave. This song, as John describes it, completes our joy. 
So let's open our Bibles together on your phone, etc., and explore joy in the gospel in 1 John 1 through 4. Now, let's talk about a little bit of background as we open up John's epistle. First, we need to talk about our author. John, as some of you know, is one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, what we now call the apostles, meaning those who were entrusted with the responsibility of carrying the gospel forward after their time with Jesus. John is a disciple who who Jesus uniquely called his beloved and was one of his closest friends. John is generally recognized as responsible for writing the Gospel of John, and then the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is the first epistle, and then also the book of Revelation. He is also believed to have been the last living disciple at the end of his life, which most scholars believe John was the only, of the, only one of the apostles to remain living until, until old age. He died in old age in Ephesus. All that to say, as we look at this, that John is an authoritative voice. This is part of his message in these first four verses. John is making it abundantly clear to his audience that he is speaking with apostolic authority. The we John references in verse 1 are the apostles of whom John is a prominent member. In other words, John is not making this up. Second, chief among the reasons that John writes this epistle is because his young church, likely both locally and more broadly, so when John would have written this epistle, he would have given it to, sent it to one church, and that church leader would have been responsible for sharing it with his church, and then passing it on to another church leader, and that letter would have begun to make its round so that John's message could make it to all of the local churches. But what we learn as we read through 1 John is that this church is uniquely under some sort of spiritual or physical duress. They're, they're under some sort of persecution. If we read on in the letter, we'll, we will realize that There are someone, John refers to them as antichrists, but someone or some group of people are preaching a false gospel to John's church, to John's people. And so when he says, when he uses words like the son and having fellowship with the father, it's because he is specifically counteracting a message that has gone against the gospel that he has preached them. You can see that John is quick to address this in our passage because he not only testifies with apostolic authority, he uses the phrase, the Father was made manifest. That's referring to the incarnation. And he talks about our fellowship with the Father through Jesus Christ. We have to know the Father, that the Father is God, and then we know that Father God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to come up later. These words are not accidental. John is establishing a foundation for his audience on which he will build the rest of his epistle. He starts with the gospel because he wants his audience to find joy in its song. Now, let's take a second to quickly define what we mean when we say joy in the gospel. You're going to use the words gospel and joy a lot this morning. Well, the first word we will define is the gospel. A good, nef- good definition of the gospel is found just a chapter later in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, meaning he is the sacrifice, for our sins only, for not our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So key points in there. John is noting that Jesus is Christ, that he is our advocate, that he is our propitiation, and that he's a propitiation for the whole world. This is the same gospel, the gospel that John is preaching here in this passage, that is preached throughout the entire New Testament. In fact, the same gospel that is preached throughout all of Scripture. Paul says something similar to this in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, when he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Notice the tone of Paul is really similar to the tone of John. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when John is referring to joy in the gospel, that is the gospel that John is referring to, that Christ has come to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, let's look at the word joy. The word, Greek word used here is kara. It's my friend Kara here this morning, beautiful Kara, who, if you know Kara, she truly exemplifies joy. But John uses the word, or the New Testament uses the word kara, the Greek word kara, word we translate joy, over 50 times. And that meaning is almost always something like happiness, gladness, rejoicing, which is very similar to the way that we use it. But in this passage specifically, there is a much richer connotation than just maybe those words like happiness and gladness. Here, John uses joy to express the idea of completeness or wholeness. My joy may be complete. In other words, there is something about this gospel message and the consequential fellowship with God the Father that John believes makes us complete. Joy is derived from the gospel. Thus, our title this morning, Joy in the Gospel. Are you with me? So what I hope that we can learn and therefore apply to our lives this morning is this, that joy in the gospel is found when we, one, experience the gospel, when we, two, testify to the gospel, and when we, three, proclaim the gospel. When we experience the beauty of the gospel, we find joy. When we testify to the truthfulness of the gospel, we find joy. And we, when we proclaim the hope of the gospel message, we find joy. In the movie Coco, in the clip we watched, there's that amazing transformation that comes over Miguel's great-grandmother when she hears her, her, grand, her father's song. Up until that point in the movie, she is literally like, through that whole movie, she's just like that. She has her head down. She's not talking. She's non-responsive. It's almost as if she is dead in her living body. Scripture uses a very similar idea to describe our spiritual condition when Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, and you... Two were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Scripture makes it abundantly clear, in fact, it's almost seems absurd that I'd have to stand up here and defend it, that all of us, every single one of us, is born into a world enslaved to the power of sin and death. We are at the very center of that enslavement. Sin controls us and spills out of us uncontrollably into the world that we inhabit. We could spend the rest of today's time exploring just this idea. We could literally just sit here and camp on the ways that sin has perverted and destroyed our lives and consequently the, city, the systems, the cities, the countries, and our world as a whole. We see this power in our broken marital and parenting relationships. We see it in our broken sexuality and our unwanted desires or addictions. We see it in the crime and violence in our neighborhoods or the police brutality we've witnessed even recently in Memphis. We see it in our antagonistic political culture. We see it in the war that ravishes human lives in Europe and the Middle East. And this is the point that I'm trying to make. 
that we can deny it all we want, but we cannot escape the reality that sin is real, that sin is powerful, and that sin has cursed our lives with death and despair. It is this reality that is so true and that John is addressing, addressing here, and it is also this reality that is the very thing that God abolishes and redeems through Jesus. In order to have good news, in order to have a gospel which literally means good news, then there has to be a bad news, right? There has to be something that good news comes into. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, that there is only one remedy to the brokenness of sin and, sin and death in our lives, and that is the goodness of the gospel. It is the good news that God saves sinners. The gospel is life. And if you experience the, go- the good news of the gospel, then you know this well. If you have not, then let me give you this exhortation this morning. The gospel is the only thing capable of rescuing what is lost, of redeeming what is warped, and of restoring what is broken. Repenting of your sin and casting your full hope and belief on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the only true hope to be found in this life and in the next. It is this that brings us the joy that John describes. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. In psychology, there are two interrelated concepts called attachment and attunement. And I think our, I don't know if the Terhunes are here this morning, but this summer the Terhunes taught a parenting class where they specifically talked about these two concepts, attachment and attunement. So if you were there, you know this concept well. And the idea behind these concepts, and this is really oversimplified, so my counseling wife can scold me later, but basically the idea is this, that when children are developing, they have an innate need to be safely loved, seen, heard, cared for, and soothed by their parents. They need to be attached to their parents in a loving, safe relationship, and they need to be attuned to emotionally so that they know that everything's okay. It helps them regulate. These things, almost more than any other things in their development, are vital to healthy and physical growth. There's literally a book called The Body Keeps a Score that some of you may have read that talks about how when children don't receive proper attachment and attunement, they've studied this specifically in orphanages where children start day one in an orphanage. They struggle physically to grow and develop and be healthy and strong. For the rest of their lives, they have the risk of having health consequences. These things give life and vitality to children as they grow. They create stability and security from which children launch into the dangerous and unknown world around them. That's why if you're a parent here today, your job is so important. And it is a gift, a gift that your children have you. Children crave these things. They literally want to be with you, to sit next to you, to bug you, to say, mom, 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 mom. Your child needs you. This is what they communicate when at two weeks of age, they wake mom up. And let's be honest, if you've been a dad, like they wake mom up, right? Like I slept right through those two weeks, just cold as a stone. And my wife would get waked up when Jensen and Dottie were crying, and they're crying out, I need food, I need love, I can't get it myself, will you take care of me? It's also the same need that three-year-olds and 13-year-olds and 18-year-olds, and shoot, even us 32-year-olds in our marriage are saying when we come home from a long day at school or work or being out with friends, and we just have a meltdown. You ever had that moment? Have you ever had that parenting moment when your kid comes home, everything is fine, literally they've been in the car, it's all been well, you've gotten Chick-fil-A, they walk in the front door, all the things drop on the floor, and it, all hell just breaks loose, right? It just goes crazy, and you're, you're sitting there going, what in the world is happening? In that moment, your child is saying, I'm emotionally exhausted. 
Will you give me food? Will you love me? And will you gently teach me to rest? Children need these things. They need the love and provision to survive and to thrive. It is this that they experience in a healthy and loving relationship. Now, why did I share that? Well, it certainly was not to discourage you if you were a parent this morning, because I will be the first one to testify as a parent that we don't respond to all those moments well, do we? No. And a gift, I think a gift of God's grace in our lives is that even as insufficient parents, God is still good to our children and God is good to us. And just even the very act of being there for your kiddo and sharing love and care for them at all is a grace. So the point of this is not to shame us parents, truly not to shame us. The point is to to help you visualize the idea that for children, attachment and attunement are absolutely vital. They must experience that to thrive and grow. For us, the gospel is exactly the same way. Scripture literally says, when it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it's meaning that there is such a significant rift between us and God that there is nothing outside of God's grace that can bring us back into the relationship for which we were created. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, that story communicates to us the truth that we were literally created to be in fellowship with God. And when sin and death cursed the world, that fellowship was torn apart. And apart from fellowship with God, we cannot thrive. We cannot truly be who we were made to be. And the gospel is the very thing that allows us to be that person. In order to experience gospel joy in our lives, we have to experience the gospel every single day. So how do we do that? Well, I'm taking a class on church history this semester, and um, there's this quote I ran across by the Moravian. The Moravians were a group of people in the, I think in the 1600s, 1700s, that's when they started at kind of about the same time as the Reformation, and they were a part of that reformational culture. They really, truly latched on to this gospel message and that the gospel was an experiential relationship with an incarnational God. And so there was a Moravian missionary years and years down the road after the Moravians had started named Peter Bowler, and he said to, the, to John Wesley, that's a name you may know, he said this when, when Wesley was struggling to preach faith. He said, preach faith till you have it, and then, because you have it, you will preach faith. If we were going to adapt this quote to answer our question, how do we experience the gospel every day, we might say, preach the gospel to yourself every single day until you can't live without it. And then, because you can't live without it, you will live it. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day until you can't live without it. And then, because you can't live without it, you will live it. We experience the gospel by diving into it with our whole self. We do this practically by reading our scripture every day. Yes, that annoying little thing that you were told in Sunday school that you should read your Bible every single day. Like when I was in Sunday school growing up, there was the, they held this aloof prize overhead, this whole catalog from a Christian bookstore and said, if you will read your Bible every single day for a whole year, every single day, on the honor system, every single day, you'll, you're going to do this little devotional and bring it back. At the end of that year, we'll open up this catalog, and you can pick anything you want in it, and we'll buy it for you, right? And uh, that was a game that I never won as hard as I strived. But there was a point to that lesson, right? The point to that lesson was not that we earn God's grace. The point to that lesson was that there are practical ways, like reading the Scripture every single day, in which we can 
participate in the experience of the gospel. So we experience it through scripture, through praying regularly, through participating in corporate worship, serving within our church community, joining a Bible study, etc. The point here is not to give you a list of dues. The point is this. I promise you that if you seek the gospel every single day, if you seek to connect with a God who loved you and cared for you so much that he would come in human form, suffer and die on a cross, that you might have new life. If you pursue that with your whole being, I promise you that you will find it. Jesus says it like this to the woman at the well in John 4. Whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. Gospel joy is found when we experience the life-giving beauty of the gospel every single day. Gospel joy is also found when we testify to the truth of the gospel. As a reminder, when John is writing this epistle, he's doing so to, an, to remind an audience of gospel truth. He's trying to go take them all the way back to the beginning because that very first message, that message that God loves sinners of whom I am the worst has been compromised, right? Somebody's out there saying like, no, nah, that's not a thing. If you study 1 John, at some point you'll come, up, come upon the word Gnosticism. And many scholars like to argue over whether or not Gnosticism was present in the book of 1 John. And Gnosticism was this, was this philosophy, theology, spirituality that actually I think hits really close today to home that Jesus wasn't actually the Son of God. He wasn't God incarnate. Gnosticism said, preached the lie that Jesus was just this special emissary sent with this beautiful revelation from God, and that if we, if we listened carefully, we could experience. It was really spiritual, didn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, if you, even in just saying that, like, literally, Jesus was just, he's just an emissary, right? He's just a spiritual being that had some ambiguous purpose to share some ambiguous spirituality with us. That's Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is not present in the book of 1 John, Gnosticism would come several hundred years later, but a lot of scholars believe that the early seeds of Gnosticism are being preached. And I, I tell you that to tell you this. There's, we humans have not invented anything new since the beginning of time. We just keep repeating the same things over and over and over again. In fact, if you open up TikTok right now and you were to search spirituality, I promise you would find hundreds of thousands of videos with a shocking amount of views of someone just talking about spiritual things. There, if you listen for 30 seconds, you will, you'll walk away and go, I have literally no idea what we were talking about other than the fact that it was spiritual, right? Tim Keller, through the life of his ministry, the pastor from, from New York City who just recently passed, um, through most of his life talked about this idea of whether or not are we moving into a secular age. And as he got towards the end of, the, uh, end of his life, he would say this, we're not actually moving into a secular age, we're moving into a post-Christian age. We haven't traded religion for secular, secularity, we've traded Christianity for religiosity or for spirituality, right? This is, a, I mean, truly, if you go talk to anybody in Gen Z and you just start talking kind of spiritual, I can almost guarantee you that you're going to hit home. Like, there's going to be some part of that, whether it's a mishmash of atheism, the, whatever. Like, it's not a coherent theology or philosophy. It's just a spirituality. That's the kind of thing that John is speaking into. And so when he speaks with clarity and he testifies to his own experience, when he says, which, that which was from, from the beginning in verse 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, he is literally testifying to his own experience, that we is apostolic. He means that myself and the other apostles, we have literally walked with this Jesus that we're talking about. 
We have literally seen him, touched him, heard him. When he rose from the dead, we were there. We were the ones to put our hands in the nail holes. We are tempted, just like John's audience, to ignore the testimony of Scripture in the church in favor of our own version of the truth. This is a temptation that has gripped every single generation since the beginning of man. In that church history class I'm taking, we're studying the liberal theology movement that came about in the 19th and 20th centuries. And without getting too deep in the weeds, because this is not a church history class, the liberal theological movement that swept through the U.S., through Europe, and then into the U.S. in the early 1900s was an attempt to rationalize, rationalize the historic faith and tradition. It was an attempt to make something that was making a truth claim and say, well, this truth claim is not essential. It looked at Scripture and said, what is rational to believe? What can we prove? Andrew Hoffecker says it like this, liberal theology is rooted in the substitution of modern enlightenment theories of knowledge that reject external sources of knowledge and substituted subjective autonomy of human reason or experience. While earlier theology was rooted in the belief that the Bible and the creeds articulated a coherent, unified, and authoritative worldview. So it was a tr- liberal theology was a trading of an authoritative worldview for a more ambiguous worldview. Liberal theology has led to what we might call today in evangelical circles progressive Christianity. That's how we experience. It has also led, like I said earlier, to an increasingly post-Christian moment. Mark Sayers, who's a pastor from Melbourne and cultural apologetist, apologist and seems to get right to it, says this. He says, I think that what post-Christianity is and its belief in progress is a desire for a kingdom without a king. A kingdom without a king. I, can't, I don't know if I can think of a better thing that describes our current cultural moment. Like, think about all the things that our culture is obsessed with right now. All of those things, in some sense, are the striving for the, the fruit of a kingdom without any acknowledgement of a king. We want peace and equality and love and kindness. We want our politics to take the temperature down. And we have all these different ways culturally that we throw things at to make that happen. It's not that those impulses are bad. It's that we've simply cast off the truth in the process of seeking the fruit. Does that make sense? So we're seeking a kingdom without a king. Paul says something super similar in Romans 1 when he says, for although they knew God, he's speaking about us, about humans, about the human condition. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Some of you may be familiar with the artist Michael Gunger, or the band Gunger. They wrote a song when I was in high school called Beautiful Things that I still love, and I loved at the time. So for years, you know, I sung that song, played it on the guitar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I learned that Michael Gunger had this podcast called The Liturgist, this was probably five years ago now, I picked it up, and I was really excited. I was like, oh, I'm going to listen. This will be cool, right? I, know, I remember this guy. What a beautiful song. Like, it was so poetic. It so poetically described the process of the gospel transforming us into beautiful things. But as I listened, I, I was quickly and kind of like, shockingly confused. I didn't understand exactly what was going on because what I didn't know when I picked up that podcast but soon discovered was that Michael Gunger was a part, an early part of what we might now call the exvangelical or the deconversion movement. Along the way, his journey got, it truly got pretty wacky. And so, for example, I think we have a tweet. This is all public, so as a preface, we're not picking on Michael Gunger this morning. Michael Gunger is just an excellent example of kind of this, like, spirituality or this Christianity without a Christ. 
So Michael Gunger had this tweet in 2021 where he tweeted, Jesus was the Christ, Buddha was the Christ, Muhammad was the Christ. This is the key line. Christ is a word for the universe seen itself. If you understand what that means, please come and talk to me later. You are Christ. We are the body of Christ. So he like tries to like kind of save it at the end. We are the body of Christ, right? And later on an Instagram Live, a viewer who was pretty frustrated with Michael Gunger said, do you think Jesus is the only Christ? What's the, and the answer to that question is yes. So that's why this is about to make no sense at all. Here's what he says. I'm still saying there's one Christ. I'm saying that when Jesus spoke the words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. He was speaking as the quote-unquote Christ, the one Christ. But what is the one Christ? Is it the body of Jesus? And what part? The brain? What exactly is the truth and the life? The fingernails? The brain? The skin? The hair? Or was it the animating life of Jesus? He finished it by saying Jesus was the true Christ. Now, what about he, anything that he just said, that tweet and that quote, gives you confidence that Michael Gunger believes that Jesus is actually the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who has come to redeem and save us all. It doesn't give me any at all. Like, that leaves me feeling confused. And this morning, what I'm, I'm not, not trying to do, just like we're not trying to shame parents, we're not trying to pick on the deconversion movement. I have a lot of friends that have gone through the ex-evangelical deconversion movement. I think that this is a start to the conversation for some of those problems, but I also have an, a great deal of empathy for the problems and the frustration and the hurt behind that movement. When I hear stories about men and women leaving the church, my reaction, first reaction is often deep sadness and a desire to understand what is going on. The point is not to deride someone like a Michael Gunger. It's to understand it and to understand that as a direct consequence of a liberal theology that came about 200 years ago and began to erode our culture post-enlightenment, began to tell us, like, I don't know about this Jesus thing. I don't know about this Christianity thing. I don't know about this truth claim that there's only one God and that there's only one Son of God. I don't know about all this. An attempt, Michael Gunger, in an attempt to make Christianity relevant to a world he perceived as having progressed past traditional Christian faith and doctrine, has thrown out the very thing that makes Christianity so powerful, the testimony that Jesus is the only Christ. That's the answer to that question. Do I believe, do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Yes, Jesus is the only Christ. It is not wrong to question our beliefs or traditions as Christians. That's great, you can clap for that, that's amen. It's not wrong to question our beliefs as Christians when some, when Someone asks us to, and we experience something that's difficult. But Elisa Childers says it like this really beautifully. She says, evaluating our beliefs and traditions and church culture in light of Scripture and rejecting any unbiblical beliefs with the goal of living more authentically as Christians should be a daily reality. But this is not deconstruction. It might rightly be called reformation or restoration or even healing. The ref period of the Reformation, if you've heard that, that term in church history, or if you haven't, it refers to a period of time that started with Martin Luther pinning his 95 theses uh, on the door of the chapel. And Martin Luther was a priest, a Catholic priest, committed to the health and wealth and growth of the Catholic Church. He thought that the Catholic Church was what the world needed to know and love Jesus. And so when Martin Luther goes and he pins on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, pins these 95 theses, it's these 95 things that he has identified in the Catholic Church that directly counteract the truth of Scripture. He is not seeking 
to destroy the Catholic Church. He was seeking to reform the Catholic Church. And so when we look at a passage like 1 John and we read John's testimony of God the Father coming into fellowship with us through his son Jesus Christ, of extending the olive branch and saying, hey, I'll take the penalty for that sin. I'll repair what's broken. It's not just when we, when we come to that and we look at our faith and we question our beliefs and we go through a trial and a temptation, if we return back to that truth to reform that faith. If we deconstruct and reject that truth entirely, we have done nothing at all. We have come no closer to finding the answer than when we were angry and when we were hurt. John knows this truth. The truth of the gospel is not responsible for the consequences of sin, consequences like church hurt that lead us to deconvert. The truth of the gospel is the remedy for those consequences, and we should not be afraid to testify to that truth in our world today. We not only should be unafraid to testify of that truth, we should do it boldly. We should do it boldly with love, but with courage. We should not be afraid when someone like a Michael Gunger says, you know, I don't know know about this Jesus thing. When he gets asked that question, is Jesus the only true Christ? We should say boldly, yes, Jesus is the only true Christ, now, forever, and only the Son of God. This leads us perfectly into our final point, and that is that we experience the joy in the gospel when we proclaim the hope that we have received in the gospel. Now, this is slightly confusing because for us, we might think that testify and proclaim, like in the English language, those words probably seem pretty closely related. But if you look in verse, let's see, verse 2, John says, this life was made manifest. He's talking to Jesus. And we, we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Testify and proclaim in the original Greek are two very different words. Testify ref- refers to like literally like giving testimony in court. It's John saying, I have seen it. I have touched it. I'm an apostle. I was there. I'm testifying to it as an eyewitness. Proclaiming is different. Proclaiming is the idea. I, I talked to the youth recently, and I use this idea. If you've ever uh, spent any time with a new parent, or really any parent at all, like at some point in that conversation, they're going to be like, oh, do you want to see a picture? Do you want to see a picture of my kiddo? Right? And that's because as a parent, like this is something that I did not understand before I became a parent, but as a parent, there's something so profound about the experience of raising and loving these little human beings that you cannot help every opportunity you get to try to share, to try to proclaim that joy to somebody else, Right? No, it doesn't matter how disinterested they are. That phone, I've literally been in the middle of a conversation like, do you want to see a picture of my kids? The face is gone. Like, I've lost that person, and that phone is still coming out, right? And we're still scrolling through pictures. That's because you literally can't contain that joy. You have to proclaim it. You have to share it. That's the idea that John is communicating here, that he is both testifying to this joy, but he's not solely just sharing what he knows is true, what, what he knows is true, what he has experienced John is proclaiming this truth because it has so profoundly changed his life that he can do nothing but seek to share that hope and that joy with someone else. So he's writing to this church, and it can be easy as you read John even to read it and go, well, John's just giving us like a list of do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts. John's giving us a list of things that we should be careful not to do. Like John is painting the picture of the gospel that's all about just being obedient, just doing the right thing. If you read 1 John and you skip this part, that's an easy thing to get. That's an easy message to receive. 
But that is the exact opposite of what John is saying. John is literally inviting them, compelling them. He's saying, look, you've been over here. I don't know who. Somebody's gotten up, up in the chicken coop and is causing absolute havoc. They're preaching a false gospel. And that gospel, if you listen to that gospel, will not give you the things that you want. In fact, if you follow that gospel, if you follow that untruth, for us today we might say if you follow that spirituality, if you accept the idea of a kingdom without a king, you will only find yourself walking in darkness. There is no life there. And so when John proclaims it in 1 John chapter 1, he's saying this is life. This is hope. This is redemption. And everything I'm going to say after this is built on this idea. Everything that comes after in the, Christ, the, in the Christian life. When Tim gets up here on a Sunday morning, he says, you, you just that, right? Shout out to Tim. And you sit there and you go, oh, God, man, I'm, I'm in school again. Like, he's just telling me things I got to do. If, if you miss the gospel message, absolutely. Gospel, the, the gospel or Christianity just sounds like a list of rules. If you hear the gospel message and you're saying, wait a minute. You're telling me I can't just while out on Friday night anymore? That's where the gospel is? Like, no, brothers and sisters, you've missed it. The gospel message is not, uh, you can't do this anymore. It's, yo, this isn't going to give you life. You can go pursue it. You can go after it as hard as you want. But at the end of the day, at the end of the road, this won't give you life. Life is only found here. It's not found here. If you want the fruits of the kingdom, let's say your heart, maybe you don't while out on Friday night. But you go to school on Monday morning and you are absolutely committed, driven to seeing the school system in Memphis changed. You want to see that kingdom fruit, but you don't want to have a king at the, at, the, at the front of it? Then you will never, ever, ever see it change. There is no kingdom without a king. The gospel invites us into fellowship with God the Father, and it is this very thing that sin has torn apart. And so we must proclaim the good news that God is love that God is mercy and grace, and that God desires to have a relationship with us. As we come upon this, the uh, Christmas th season, the thing that kept coming back to my mind, logical, because we're talking about joy, but joy to the world, the song Joy to the World. And in 1719, when the hymn writer Isaac Watts unwittingly, he unwittingly penned the words to Joy to the World, he wrote Joy to the World that, as a poem in a book of poems where he took different psalms from Scripture. Joy to the World comes from Psalm 98, he took different psalms from the book of Psalms and sought to write them in such a way that they explicitly proclaimed the name of Jesus. So he, he sought to take an Old Testament truth that was hidden and make it, make it right there in our face. And so if we think about that, if we read it, then think about that. Think, have this idea in your mind that Jesus is the good news that we are proclaiming. This is from Psalms 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. Jesus, this is screaming, Jesus. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. It is this that Isaac Watts took and turned into joy to the world. That's not an accident. This Christmas, when we sing joy to the world, we are proclaiming the transformational truth that God has made known his salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that truth? In Coco, Miguel experiences something that changes everything. When he discovers the truth about his grandfather and about his music, 
he returns to share that music with his family. In doing so, he changes the past and the future. It's a truth that redeems. When we encounter the gospel, that experience changes our life. When we both experience truth and understand truth, we are compelled to testify and proclaim, just like John, to the redeeming power of the gospel. The question this morning before us is this, will your joy be complete? Will you commit yourself daily to experience the gospel as you run after Jesus? Will you testify to the truth of gospel in a world that so easily denies and ignores that truth? Will you proclaim the power of the gospel in your life, inviting others to do the same? You must. We must. This is why we were created, to make name great the name of our creator and redeemer God, to find joy in the good news of the gospel. Amen? Let us pray. Father, I just lift up my brothers and my sisters here today, especially as we, um, Lord, we travel all over to see family, or maybe we stay foot, put, and, and family's coming to us, and we take on all the things that go into a holiday season. Lord, I pray that as, Lord, this day ends and the new one begins on Monday morning, um, Lord, that we would find ourselves sitting at the feet of Jesus, eager to experience love and grace and truth. Lord, I pray that as we experience your love, that as we experience your redemption in the gospel, that we would testify to that truth and that we would make great the name of Jesus, that we would proclaim this joy to the world. Father, we lift you up high. We thank you for all that you have done to us. And we humbly come before you in in a spirit of just asking that you would make your love known to us. In your son's name, amen.